Scripture this morning starts with John 18, verse 25 through 27. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and they said therefore to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of one of whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter therefore denied it again, and immediately a cock crowed. And John 21, beginning in verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of God, excuse me, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Truly, I truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands And someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Thanks, Mitchell. Let me ask you a real practical question. Are you too cold? Is it cold in here? Okay. Um, You know, I think that... uh, Oh, yes, turn away down. I think that uh, those things get set by preachers and ushers who are rushing around. Hi. And uh, it's kind of like uh, <clears throat> letting the cook at the grill set the temperature in the in a restaurant. <clears throat> this is the last in a four-part series of sermons on relationships. And I am talking about how to build ideal relationships that have a covenant character to them. You will remember, please, that all of this year that we are searching for God's purpose in our lives... But God puts that purpose in the context of relationships. He established covenants with his people. And he gave us primary relationships in which we could work out the character of that covenant so that when we discover the purpose for our lives, it will always be in the context of the relationships that God has given us and not in the context of some objective work, job, task kind of thing. So we've been talking about establishing ideal relationships, and I want to talk this morning about rebuilding a relationship after it's been broken. Let me ask you a question. What is your reaction to the assumption that you have ruined a relationship? How do you react when you think that you have ruined a relationship? Now, there are two people in the Bible that believed that they had ruined their relationship with Christ. And they reacted in very different ways. One of them was Judas. If you will turn to Matthew chapter 27, I will show you his reaction. Now remember as you're turning, 
that in the Gospel of John, it told us that at the, at the Passover meal, Satan entered into Judas. And so therefore, at this point, we know that Satan is a huge influence in Judas's life, and the reaction that Judas has will be a direct result of the influence that Satan has in his life. Now watch what he does. Then, starting in verse 3, Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, saw that Jesus had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now I want you to te- I want to teach you something. Satan is so subtle that while we are betraying primary relationships, many many times we don't realize the consequence. We have we have no idea. Subtle, remember, does not mean soft, it means not noticing the consequences. Therefore, Judas betrays Jesus, and for the first time after that betrayal is complete, he becomes aware of the real consequences of his actions. How many times have you betrayed a friendship and realized only afterwards how much you hurt someone else and entered into this remorse? Well, watch what he does. He tries to correct it as much as he can. He says, he's returning the money, but they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. Then he threw the silver into the sanctuary and departed and went away and hanged himself. The first reaction, Satan influenced to our regret at thinking we have ruined a relationship is to take ourselves out of the picture. It is to commit physical or emotional or spiritual suicide. It is to listen to the voice that says within us, if you had any honor at all, you wouldn't associate anymore with that person. You would go take your sins upon yourself and destroy yourself. You've done enough damage. You get away from them now. They're better off without you. That's what Satan says. When we believe we've ruined a relationship. And so many times we do. We take ourselves out of the picture. Just like Judas did. I was at a dinner the other night for Campus Crusade and one of the interesting stories that was told of a missionary was about someone who had... And this was, this was a, about how all societies try to deal with their own sin. And therefore, they set up a readiness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, in the Old Testament, uh, the, the nation of Israel would once a year release a goat into the wilderness. They would banish this goat. And on that goat, they would place all of their sins symbolically. And then they would banish him into the wilderness. That's where we get the word scapegoat. When you're blaming someone else for your own stuff and they are carrying around your sins. That's where we get that word. Well, in this tribe in Africa, it was the Maasai tribe, they also lived in a state of guilt. And so once a year, the leaders of the tribe would go to a seer in another town, a a, uh, magical... uh, prophetic person, magician, 
And this seer would name four families in that tribe from which these people, these leaders, would go back and cast lots to find the name of the individual who that year would bear the sins of the tribe. And then, after they had found that name, they would go to that individual and watch with much sorrow upon the village's uh, uh, heart and with even greater sorrows on the family of that man. They would lead that man outside the tribal boundaries. They would build him a hut. And every day, they would take him food so that he was physically safe. But no one could talk with him, no one could touch him, no one from that tribe could ever love him again. Can you imagine the release of the tribe? All of them were potential outcasts. Can you imagine the release of the families and especially the release of the individuals when they were brought news of one who had come from God to bear the sins of the whole world, one time and one time only. And that he was sufficient to bear the sins of all of the world and no one ever needed to be outcast again because we had rejected that chief cornerstone. He was the one that took the sins. We didn't need to try to pay for him any, t- any, any more. Can you imagine the joy of those people? Well, you know what? We still have the same tendency those people do. At the bidding and the voice and the influence of Satan, when we believe we've ruined a relationship, our first tendency is to take ourselves out of that relationship so that we somehow can bear our own sins and not give them to Christ because we feel responsible. Satan keeps saying, well, this is the noble thing to do, that you would bear the consequences of your own sin. And so he tries to isolate us. That is the Judas response to become isolated, to become, as the song said, lonely, outcast, afraid. Now, there's another club, and the club is the Simon Peter Club. If you will turn to Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, let me show you another way to deal with actual fallenness, with our own failure in relationships with the notion that we have ruined a relationship. That's, a, that's something that Satan loves to Boy, you've blown it now. That relationship will never be what it could have been. It will never be the same. It will, it's going to be... Let me read this to you. And I read this to you to say this. God is not surprised at our failure. Our failure does not take God by surprise. Satan wants to say, oh man, it's all or nothing. We are such perfectionists when it comes to our own behavior. You know it? We get in this thing where if I've blown it, I might as well just quit. Because I've ruined God's perfect plan. Well, let me tell you something. You haven't ruined anything. You have only done what God knew you were going to do. Sin is never God's plan A. Please don't get me wrong. Please don't think that God wills us to sin. But God knows us better than we know ourselves. And where we're surprised with our failure, God's not. He knows us very well. 
Look at what he said to Simon Peter before Simon Peter ever denied him. He looked at him and he said in verse 31, Simon, Simon. Now right there, you know this is a serious statement. You leave the regular conversational level when he calls your name twice. It's like when you were little and your parents used your full name. When they used your full name, you had just left the conversational level of interchange. And you knew you had better listen to what came next. This is like Jesus is taking Simon's cheeks and pulling it up in front of his face and saying, Simon, listen to this. Behold, Satan has demanded permission, remember that word, permission to sift you like wheat. Now let me tell you something interesting about that sentence. The word you in that sentence in the Greek is in its plural form. And so therefore, he is not just talking to Simon as an individual. He's talking to Simon as a representative of a group of people. You see, Satan from the beginning has gone after the righteous. Do you remember in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2 what the Bible says? That Satan went and asked permission to test Job. He asked permission of God. Now, testing is not a bad thing. Testing is a good thing, right? Because you have the capability to pass as well as to fail. And even if you fail, you learn what you know as well as what you don't know. You learn where you've got some competence and where you've got some weakness. Testing is a very valuable thing. That's why we go through testing all through school, so that we can know where our weak points are and bone up on those. See? Testing is a good thing. Testing does not mean automatic failure. Job was tested for a long period of time. Yet he never denied God. Jesus was tested, Matthew 4.1. And the Spirit led Jesus up into the wilderness to be tested by Satan. Testing is not a bad thing. The Spirit wouldn't lead Jesus into a bad thing, right? Testing is a good thing. And Jesus did not fail. In Hebrews 4.15, it says, let me read it to you. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So therefore, Satan asks permission for a good thing, which is testing. Jesus knew Peter, though, and he knew what the results were going to be. Now, let me show you a little diagram that's always been helpful to me. Because we are such perfectionists, and because every time I sin and every time I fail, I think that I'm listening to, I mean, what Satan is saying to me is really true. I've blown it all. Now I'm out of the picture. This is it. I'm sorry. It's gone. Everything I ever dreamed I'd do for God is all gone now. Let me show you a little chart. There is a line of God's perfect will. There is plan A. And if everybody did... What was the will of God from the time they were born, you would walk along that line with Jesus. Because that's the line Jesus walked. Did not sin, says. Always did, plan A. Tempted in every manner, never failed. Tested always as we are, never failed. However, that's not us. We are with the Simon Peter crowd. The X. 
We turn around, we say, oh no, here I am, I'm not doing God's perfectly well, I have failed, therefore I'm out of the picture. We say, how did this happen? Oh, don't let God discover this. I bet he's terribly shocked. Well, no he's not. God permitted us to be tested and by implication permitted us to fail. All right? So we're not out of his sight and we are not out of his plan and we are not out of his hands. Our failure cannot abrogate the ultimate plan of God. So now we're in this circumstance, see? And we're trying to decide, okay, where do I go from here? What is God's circumstantial will for me? What is his will in this circumstance? Now, Jesus predicted that for Peter. Look at what he said in verse 32. After he said, after he implied God's permissive will, in 32 it says, but I have prayed for you. Now we're back to the singular you again. Now this is Peter as an individual being addressed. That your faith may not fail. Now what is faith? Faith is our connection with God. It is that which connects us and helps us look in the right place. That your faith may not fail. So that after you have fallen, look at this. And you, when once you have turned, now this is a very important word, again. He's already said you're going to turn away. But once you turn again, that's God's circumstantial will. God permitted the falling. But his will in that circumstance, in that failure, is for us to turn back. And as many times as we fall, to turn back again. Why do you think Jesus asked Peter three times if he loved him? Because he was hard of hearing. He didn't understand. He just wanted to be sure. He needed the emotional support. No. Peter denied Christ how many times? Three. And on the third time, Jesus said, Peter, son of Don, do, do you love me? Peter caught the message. The Bible says in his heart was grieved because he asked him the third time. Why? Because he was frustrated he wasn't communicating well enough? No, because he remembered. It was like the cock crowing. Now I remember. As many times as we fall away, that's how many times we've got to turn back. That's repentance. See? So his will is circumstantial. I'm, I'm, his will in the circumstances for us to turn back. And then to plot a course to his ultimate will and say, okay, God, what are you going to use this for? You know, this cannot be an unredeemable situation. You would not have allowed this unless there was some use for it. And it says in verse 32 what God's ultimate will is for his turning away. That he might strengthen his brothers. That is, in Hebrews 2.18, it is also... In Acts 2.14, where it says, And Peter stood before all of Jerusalem and said, Listen to my words. You know what? Here he is, being scared out of his, his boots by a little servant girl who asked him if he was with Jesus. A month later, he's standing in front of the whole city of Judea and Jerusalem saying, Listen to me. What was that change? The change was the loss of self-confidence he had in himself in the, in the confidence in Christ. Okay, now listen. Turn this thing off. Let me go. I'm, I'm, I'm getting uh, waylaid here. Let me give you five questions to ask yourself when you find yourself 
in the midst of failure, in the midst of your own failure, when you feel like you have ruined a relationship. First question you need to ask yourself is this. Who do I need to hear from? Who do I need to hear from? Who do I need to keep myself around? Um, Knowing what I just told you about the activity of Satan wanting to separate you from believers, from those people that you have uh, uh, offended, plus he will do everything he can to keep you out of Christian fellowship. I want you to notice where Simon Peter went after his failure. In chapter 21 of the book of John, in verse 2, it says very clearly, There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana of Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two two others of his disciples. In other words, Peter went straight back. Unlike Judas, Peter went back and put himself in the middle of the people of God. Now, I can almost guarantee you that Peter didn't go back and start preaching as a Reformed sinner. There's not much more irritating than people who have totally messed up their life and the next week they have the answer for everybody else. Peter went back in a humble fashion to live among the people of God, to do the daily, everyday work. But he knew he needed to be around the people of God. It says in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the communion of saints, in the forgiveness of sins. Those two are not separated. Because it's only when we are in communion with one another that we can actually understand and receive and be encouraged in the forgiveness of our sins. Anytime you sin, anytime you feel that you have ruined a relationship, Satan's going to come to you and say, don't go and be with those holy people. You know, in first place, they're all hypocrites. But in second place, if they ever find out what you did, you're a ruined man. Or what you think, your room man. Or if this tendency ever comes out, your dog meat in their eyes. Don't believe him. This is where you belong. This is where you need to be. This is Simon Peter's reaction to a failed relationship. Let me just do a short commercial here. Home groups are so important. You know what? If you continue to come here without people knowing your name, without people having a regular connection with you, you are like the lone ranger who is a sitting duck for Satan. Sooner or later, you're going to fall. Sooner or later, you're going to believe Satan and not come around Christians for a while. And if you don't have somebody to pick you up and call you up and say, I miss you, you're a goner. Because he'll be able to say, see, they didn't even know you. You weren't important to them. You were just a number. They're just trying to build a big church there. So on and so forth, see? So therefore, it is so important to get into groups that meet uh, weekly or, or, or bi-monthly, whatever that, I never miss. Is it bi-monthly? What is, is that every two weeks? Regularly. So important that somebody will know your name, that you will have a connection there. By the way, there's a, there is a, a home group meeting tonight at the Borowskis. There's maps out there. Um, it's so important not to get left out, but to stay very really in the communion of saints and to build up those relationships together. Second question. What do I need repaired? <laughs> what repair do I need 
Let me show you one of the sweetest verses in all the Bible. Psalm 147. While you're turning to Psalm 147, let me say to you, anytime you have broken a relationship, there is poison inside of you. It's like getting stabbed. I remember the Buddha gave a metaphor once that said um, somebody was shot with a poison arrow and that he looked down at that poison arrow and that he began to analyze the wood on the arrow and the feathers and maybe who shot it and so on. And his friends were all around saying, pluck it out, pluck it out or you will die. Well, as off base as the Buddha was on the Lord, he was an agnostic, that metaphor makes sense. You need to take the advice of friends on where you've been wounded and how to extract it. You need wise counsel from other people to to help you face the hurt that you've gone through. Many times you'll need counseling through Christian brothers or sisters that will allow you to extract that poison arrow. Now, please don't go into a lifetime of counseling. That would be like standing and analyzing the arrow again. But please allow them to say, you know, this is where I think you hurt. This is where I think God wants to heal you. And that's exactly what God wants to do. He wants to heal you. Look at verse 3 and 4. It's talking about the Lord. I love these two juxtapositions. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And the Hebrew is sorrows. He counts the numbers of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Do you catch this imagery? While he's running the universe with this hand, he's paying attention to your heart. God is big enough to do the big things and the little things. He's big enough to pay attention to the laws and the individuals. See? So it's very important that you allow God to let, to let him heal you, to let his love sink into you. There was a story I heard once about a little girl whose daddy would go off to work and every time he'd go off to work, he'd pick her up and kiss her on the cheek. And it got so that every time he kissed her on the cheek, she went like this. Oh, it really started to bother him, you know. It hurt his feelings. And he didn't say anything for a few days. He just kept, picked her up and kissed her on the cheek and went out to work. And, and, and the next day, he'd pick her up and kiss her and she'd go like this right here. Finally, he just couldn't stand her. He said, honey, don't do that. She said, what? He said, rub your cheek like that. That really hurts daddy's feelings. She said, why does that hurt your feelings? He said, well, it hurts, it hurts my feelings when you rub my kisses off. She said, oh, dad, I'm not rubbing them off. I'm rubbing them in. See? That's what you need to do. You need to rub in the kisses of the father. The Bible says that if you can extract demons, but you don't put anything in there, they'll come back. See? If you can extract those things that have hurt you, but you don't sense the healing love of God, that's going to come back. So rub it in. Third question. I'm, I'm hurrying as fast as I can. Third question is... Now I forgot. <laughs> I've only done this word. Okay. What is God's ultimate will for this situation? Not what was God's ultimate will. This verb tense is very important. What is God's ultimate will? God hadn't lost the situation, see. What is God's ultimate will for this situation? We need to be able to ask the ultimate question before we plot the practical course, which is the next question. 
We need to know the direction we're going. We need to know how God can use it. We need to be able to visualize that. Carl Jung, one of the great philosophical psychologists, wrote a book one time called Modern Man in Search of a Soul. And in that book, he said that, are, that when people get around 40 years old, somewhere in that neighborhood, they begin to ask ultimate questions about their lives. And very often, they change courses for their lives. In recent decades, we've called that the midlife crisis, haven't we? It's not that recent. That's old. That was noticed a long time ago. You know why I believe that is? Do you remember, some of you, this is tougher for some of us than it is for others, when you were late teens and 20s and maybe even early 30s, boy, you thought you were invincible, you know? Anything you could do, you could fix. Anything you could mess up, you could fix by the time you get to be about 40 years old. You know there's more messed up there than you can possibly fix. And you start wondering about the ultimate questions. Okay, if I can't fix it, what is it for? Why did God allow it to happen at all? And then you start dealing with the important issues of life. And you know that God has a purpose even for our mistakes. When Peter totally denied Christ. you know what happened to him? His confidence in himself was shocked. Best thing ever happened to him. See, before this, he was the strong guy. Whenever there was silence, Peter would jump in with a direction. All this bravado. And then he got faced down by a little servant girl. And he got totally deflated. Have you ever, have you ever read the directions on, a, on a, one of those rechargeable batteries? It says it's good for the battery if, right at first, you use it until it's totally dead before you recharge it. Do that the first few times, and that will make the life of the battery longer and the current of the battery stronger. That's what God was doing to Peter, totally deflating him. So that he would no longer have confidence in his own life, but he would only have, listen to this, confidence about his own life. God wants you to have confidence about yourself, not in yourself. You see, he didn't make a mistake when he made you. He made you for a plan. made you for a wonderful use. You can be confident that you belong here in this world. But not in yourself. And he also let Peter know that the life he was living wasn't for himself. The mistakes he was making weren't for himself. It weren't, they weren't just for his education. They were for other people. Turn again and strengthen your brother's. So you've got to ask yourself, what is the ultimate use for this broken relationship? What do you want to make out of this that's good? And then, this is the tough part. You plot the practical course. You say, how am I going to act differently according to that vision in this relationship? How am I going to act differently? Now, that is a very difficult road. Because many times you have already established a pattern with somebody else. And it is so predictable, has been so predictable, they're not willing to let you change. They're not willing to believe you have changed. And so it's the most difficult, frustrating thing in the world. But you know what? There's no other way. If God tells you to change like that, you change like that and you stick with it. And eventually, the Holy Spirit will make it dawn on them, hey, there's been a change here. Now I know that that is not something that comes naturally. You know what? I love the symbol of the Moravian church. You know what it is? It's a circle 
with an ox in the middle standing between an altar and a plow. And the words underneath read, ready for either. I'm ready to work. I'm ready to be sacrificed. Whatever God wants me to do, that's what I'm ready for. I like that. It is so much work. The way is hard and narrow that leads to life. What God wants to do with us in the relationships we've blown is tough. But it's how we get our Christ-like character. Let me tell you a story about the Emperor Moth. I don't know how many of you have ever seen an Emperor Moth. They're beautiful. You know, they get these huge wings and many times decorated gorgeously. You know, an Emperor Moth, I told this to the kids last week on the retreat. An Emperor Moth starts out in a cocoon like other uh, caterpillars turning into flying objects. And he built a cocoon and the opening of that cocoon is so tiny. And he doesn't have anything to chew his way out of the cocoon so that the cocoon's opening gets bigger. And so there is within that cocoon this gelatinous mass that is trying to come out. And sometimes it takes days and weeks for him to crawl through that little tiny hole. I read a story one time about a little boy who had a Boy Scout knife and and he decided he'd make it easier. He felt sorry for them all. So he, so he made that hole just a little bit bigger. And in a few hours, out plopped this gelatinous mass with two little vestiges for wings. You know why the opening is so small in that cocoon? It's because by going through that cocoon, all of the juices are forced out of that fat body into those wonderful wings. And that's how God enables that moth to fly. When I say to you, it's going to be tough to restructure a relationship on a practical basis, I'm not kidding you, but I want to tell you, it's the only way. It's how you earn your wings. It's how you fly. One more thing. And then, Eleanor Tracy's going to sing a song that you'll be glad you stayed for. As a matter of fact, this song makes the sermon a simple prelude to what she's doing. And then Pastor Rivera will close us out wherever he is. There he is. Okay, here we go. What I said to you for so far, the first four, you know, um, who do I need to hear from? What repair do I need to do? What is God's ultimate plan for my life? And what new course do I plot for this relationship? have all been up to you. The fifth one is, is very important. You need to consider and receive the needs of that other person before you make any moves to repair a relationship in a way that's appropriate to them. You need to hear what they need in the way that they need it. In Philippians 2, it says very simply, don't consider your own, your own interests only, but consider the needs of others, because even Jesus didn't account uh, equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant for us. And you need in the process to re- remember that people need you more than you ever can imagine.
There are people who are waiting for you just to love them, not to answer all of their needs, but just to pay attention to them and just to treat them considerably and with respect. There's an image that sticks in my mind, and I'll close with this. I heard it years ago at an Indianapolis praise gathering. Somebody was talking and had seen this personally. A marriage had just broken up. Now, please don't get into the whole, this is not about divorce and remarriage. This is about ruined relationships of all kinds and our tendency to not think other people need us as much as they do. But a marriage had just broken up and this father was not being very accountable, not very regular as far as his responsibility toward his son. And all of you know that kids go through this stage of idolizing their dads, you know. It scares the bejeebers off of us dads when they go through it because we know they're going to see us for who we really are someday. But this kid was in one of those stages and, and kept making up excuses for his dad that never showed up and was too busy for him and so on and so forth. Sure enough, one Saturday morning, it was the dad's turn to come and pick up the kid. And, and the phone call came and the mother answered. And there, on the other end was a tired voice that said, you know, I just had a really rough night last night. And I, I just don't think I'm going to come over today. Just tell him something and, and he'll be okay. And the mother said, little Robert has been standing on the porch with his suitcase packed since 6.30 this morning looking for you. His little eyes looking down the road. I'm not going to tell him anything of the sort. You know what? There are a lot of people who are quietly, silently looking for us just to pay some attention. Their needs are the needs we need to consider. Would you pray with me? Lord, it is easier to cut and run, but that's not your way. It is easier to try to bear our own guilt and our own sins, but that's not the way of Jesus Christ. Help us to allow Christ to bear our sins, to accept your forgiveness, but also help us to do the work that we need to do to take on the nature of Christ and to love as he loved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.